Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview philosopher James Sennett. The idea of Gandhi burning in hell is absolutely absurd. And any religion that entails that inherits the absurdity. Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. Dr. James Sennett is the Associate Professor of Philosophy at Bernau University in Gainesville, Georgia. He has published a couple dozen professional articles and book chapters on philosophy of religion with a special focus on the philosophy of Alvin Plantinga. James, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Luke. I'm glad to be here. Now, James, I imagine that your worldview has changed quite a bit since you were a child. Would you mind sharing with us the story of your own faith journey? My dad was a preacher, so, you know, I my home was a Christian home from the very start, and I just sort of took in basic evangelical Christianity with a Campbellite twist, Alexander Campbell, Disciples of Christ tradition. Huh. The, the tradition has basically three main branches to it right now. The Disciples of Christ is sort of the left-leaning branch, and the non-instrumental churches of Christ are the right-leaning branch, and, of course, there's a lot of room between those two. And so the independent Christian churches and churches of Christ kind of plow sort of an evangelical but not radically fundamentalist path between those two horns. Okay. Um, it's, it's, the, it's the domination that's associated with the North American Christian Convention, Southeastern Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky, which I believe is the second largest church in the United States, is sort of our flagship congregation. Uh-huh. So I, I grew up in an evangelical Christian environment went to a Bible college, and I went from there to seminary at Lincoln Christian Seminary in Illinois, where I did a Master of Divinity degree with a, an emphasis in, in uh, Old Testament studies. So, uh, you know, throughout all that time, I was pretty well towing a, a very strong evangelical line, at least in the sense of high view of Scripture. I've never been an inerrantist uh, for a lot of reasons, but very high view of the authority of scripture and belief, you know, in the literal miracles. I even for a time before I started doing some reading and thinking was a, you know, a young earth creationist and, you know, all of the basic literalistic kinds of classic evangelical interpretations of of scripture and of Christian theology in the last 30 years at least since I left seminary. My views have altered in a, in a wide variety of different ways. Perhaps the the best way to sum up the bulk of that is that I came to understand many of the more conservative and literalistic leanings of my tradition to be grounded a lot of times in a misunderstanding of what was required of the trappings of faith in order for a certain Christian expression to be credible. I was taught in both undergraduate school and seminary by a lot of literally old school people who had taken their education during the times of modernism. And so it was a very strong teaching that every word of the Bible had to be true because if some of it wasn't literally true, then you couldn't trust any of it. You know, that kind of thinking, that kind of all or nothing. So, you know, I thought there were some real misunderstandings about what it took for a, a whole faith system to be credible that it didn't require the kind of anti-scientific, anti-modernistic bent 
that I had received. Mm -hmm. And also I think that it was grounded in a lot of fear. I don't mean that pejoratively. I don't think that fear was a conscious motivation. But a, a lot of fear that the progress, particularly of science, and of empirical investigation in general and the growth of human knowledge represented a threat to authentic faith and the result was a very defensive kind of a stand and almost paranoid in some ways. Hmm. So I think the main thing I've done in recent years is kind of grow out of that. And the result now is that currently in my life, I, I feel like I have a very authentic faith. In fact, I in a lot of ways, I consider it to be more authentic than it's ever been. But it's also a faith that I know a lot of my friends find disturbing, if not threatening. But that's okay, because first time in my life, I have been free of direct involvement and responsibility in any church leadership role. And uh, it's been kind of <laughs> liberating for me to tell you the truth. Uh, so for the last five years, all I've been doing, I'm a, I, I'm a musician, I play the piano, and I've been a circuit-riding Methodist piano player for the last five years, having no more responsibility than that, and it's been absolutely wonderful. <laughs> well, what is it about what you believe now that many of your friends find threatening? I guess the best thing to do is cite a couple of examples. One obvious kind of example is that I am not a young earth creationist at all. I have no problems with a um, standard story of historical, biological, and geological evolution. As you're well aware, I'm sure there are a lot of Christian theologians and philosophers who've done a good bit of writing about how a basic evolutionary framework of the universe, the earth, and life can fit very snugly into Christian theology of nature. And I'm all for letting science inform my theology if that's what needs to happen, because I think there are times when theology needs to inform science and does. Of course, that's something that's going to make a lot of people in evangelical circles very nervous. So that's one good example. Another example has to do with the issue of religious diversity. My view is that authentic religious truth and authentic faith response to God is available in a wide variety of religious traditions. Hmm. Well, Jesus himself said, no one comes to the Father except through me, right? So Yeah, I think that's true. How do you fit that with inclusivism? The same way Jesus did, I think. <laughs> if I understand what's going on there, because that's the same Jesus who said, other sheep I have is not, who are not of this fold, right? I, I think that the key to it, and this idea actually, John Sanders' big idea that got him fired from Huntington College, that... There's an important distinction to be made between the ontological dimension of salvation and the epistemological dimension of salvation. It's quite possible for someone to be saved by Jesus without knowing that he's being saved by Jesus. His uh, appropriate response to God is being done in the framework of some other religious tradition. Hmm. C.S. Lewis held the same position, and one of the most remarkable places where it comes out is actually in the Chronicles of Narnia. In the last book, you know, the enemy of Narnia is the country of Calamine. And Calamine worships a demonic god by the name of Tash. And Tash, you know, is just like the, the great pagan gods of ancient Canaan. You know, and there's human sacrifice and, you know, all of these horrifically oppressive practices and torturous kinds of ceremonies and things like that. Well, there's this Calamine soldier whose name is Emeth, which is a, a clever name because that's the Hebrew word for truth. And Emeth is a 
morally and spiritually upright person. So at the end of the book, when Aslan calls everything to a close and brings the kids and the animals from Narnia into the lion's land, Emmeth is there. And everybody's kind of taken aback by this, including Emmeth himself. You know, and Emmeth tells his story that when he first came into the lion's land, he's wandering around, wondering where in the world he is, and he comes around a corner and runs into Aslan. You know, and Aslan is the, the Christ figure of the books. And, and as soon as he sees Aslan and knows who he is, he realizes that he's been wrong. He's thought of Adam as the enemy. He's thought of Narnia as the enemy. And now all of a sudden, you know, here they're the winners. And so he falls down at Aslan's feet expecting to be destroyed. And Aslan says to him, welcome home. And Emma says, I don't get this. He says, I lived all of my life in service to Tash. And Aslan says, no one could do the things you did in service to Tash. Because the things you did are the honorable and right things, I take everything you did as service to me. And he says, uh, are you saying then that it's true what the ape was saying, that Aslan and Tash are one? And Aslan says, no, it's the furthest thing from the truth. He says, not because we are one, but because we are very different, but I take the good things you've done as service to me. And Aslan tells him, in finding the truth as it was made available to you and responding appropriately to that, you have lived your life in service to me. So whatever situation someone is in, Truth is available. A righteous Hindu or Muslim or whatever is saved in exactly the same way I am, and that is by embracing the truth as it is made available to him and responding appropriately to it. And I think that's what salvation in Jesus is. Now, for me, this raises the question, what does that mean for atheists? Would it be possible, in your view, for uh, righteous atheists who see that seed of truth, would Jesus choose to save that atheist? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't see why not. I mean, here, here's, the, here's what I think about it. There's another thing C.S. Lewis says at some place, and you can tell I'm, I'm highly influenced by C.S. Lewis, except I read him, I kept reading him for what he was actually saying and reading him instead of reading him for what he ought to be saying if he was an evangelical. <laughs> well, I mean, it's true. I mean, let me just I mean, the side, side point here, all right? Side well, point. you're right. Evangelists haven't latched on to this inclusivistic ending to the Chronicles of Narnia. Well, of course not. It's not difficult at all to show that he has a very strong inclusivistic bent, okay? And so I presented this at a paper at the ETS, and the resistance was amazing. There were people in there who knew Lewis better than I did who didn't want to say it, you know, but they had no good arguments against it. It's just that Lewis can't possibly say that because if he did say that, he's not the evangelical hero we thought he was. Yeah. The best example of this was back in the um, late 70s and early 80s when the inerrantist controversy was raging. Mm -hmm. Christianity Today published some new collection of like the central theological works of Lewis. They did the, uh, this box set that had mere Christianity and miracles and problem of pain and abolition of man. And, and the introduction to the collection was written by Harold Lenzel. And it was Harold Lenzel, of course, who wrote the book, The Battle for the Bible, that kicked off the whole late 70s, early 80s inerrancy controversy. And, of course, one thing that's also absolutely clear from Lewis's writings is that he's not an inerrantist in any way, shape, or form. And Lindell says in the introduction, there's no doubt that Lewis did not adhere to a strict inerrantist position. But Lewis was writing in the 30s and 40s and 50s. If Lewis were writing today and understood the theological issues that are at stake in inerrancy position, I have no doubt that he would be on board full bore with the inerrancy position. He said that. 
you know, that's just absolutely bizarre. So anyway, so I was reading Lewis for what he said instead of for what he was supposed to be saying. <laughs> I will say this. When I'm able to present this position in colloquies where there aren't theology professors or preachers who pick up on the nuances of things like this, and so I have an opportunity to present the view in its perfectly commonsensical framework and in a setting where people are free to mull over it and respond to it. The overwhelming response I get from people who consider themselves to be as evangelical as Christians come, number one, they say, well, that makes perfect sense. And number two, they, they often say something like, well, that's, you know, that's sort of the way I've always thought about it. Huh. So I, I really think there is a grassroots implicit inclusivism that Unfortunately, I think these Christians might, you know, head off to Bible colleges and get that common sense educated out of them. And of course, inclusivism would seem to solve a lot of major problems with reconciling the supposed goodness of God with the claim that he's going to send the vast majority of humans who have ever lived to eternal torture, most of them for the fact of never having heard of Jesus. Or even, even having heard of him, but having heard of him in a context where they did not understand it to be either epistemologically or spiritually sound for them to respond to it. Sure, yeah. But, you know, the idea of Gandhi burning in hell is absolutely absurd. And any religion that entails that inherits the absurdity. And of course, not that Gandhi never heard of Jesus. Gandhi could quote more scripture than I could. Well, you've written a manuscript entitled The Reluctant Disciple, a Postmodern Apologetic. What's that about? It's about 230 pages. I have that joke. <laughs> it is what I call a first-person apologetic. And second of all, my first-person apologetic. Yeah. A third-person apologetic is what we normally think of as apologetics. The third-person apologetic is a rehearsal of reasons why someone should believe. A first-person apologetic is a rehearsal of reasons why I do. So why are you the reluctant disciple? You kind of divide my, my faith life up into, into two interesting parts. When I was young, I was intellectually sold on the truth of the gospel. In fact, as I say in the book, the truth of the gospel seemed to me to be so plain and so obvious that anybody who didn't believe, the only three kinds of believers, ignorant ones, stupid ones, and dishonest ones. Well, I get that a lot with scripture behind it, you know, the, the fool says well, yeah. in his heart there is no God, all that kind of stuff. Right, yeah. I think that is a standard view. So early on in my career, uh, in my career, I said basically when I was a kid, I was intellectually sure. But I was still a reluctant disciple because morally, I didn't want it to be true. Because of what I was thinking at that time were all the moral implications of the gospel, which was basically living a life that was no fun at all. Mm, okay. Could not smoke, drink, chew, or date girls who do. <laughs> and so when I, you know, when I sowed what wild oats I did, when I tried to be a real kid, you know, I could only do it with all this guilt chained around my neck and dragging along with me. As I've gotten older, I've matured morally. I have come to peace with the moral demands of faith and even come to cherish them. But at the same time, <laughs> I've learned too much. <laughs> you know, I've talked to too many very intelligent people who don't believe. Mm -hmm. I have become far too acquainted with the level of 
genuine, well-underwritten controversy over the truth of any religious system. And so now, whereas before I was intellectually sold and morally in turmoil, the second part of my life has been sort of being morally sold and in intellectual turmoil. Huh. <laughs> well, I think I read somewhere that you don't necessarily then believe that it's a rational for someone to be an atheist, is that correct? Well, no, of course not. Being an atheist does not automatically render you irrational any more than being a Christian automatically renders you rational. And I know a lot of people who are Christians for bad reasons. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I know a lot of atheists who intellectually have a very firm, rational grounding for their belief. There are some very good reasons for being an atheist. There are some very good reasons for being a theist. Whichever one's true, there are lots of people who believe the other one and are very rational for doing it. But the same thing is true of every controversial philosophical position. Controversial issues are controversial precisely because there are very good things to be said on both sides. Hmm. Well, I want to ask you about the 20th century renaissance in Christian philosophy. What are people talking about when they refer to this renaissance in Christian philosophy? I guess it's the fact that 50 years ago in, in the analytic tradition, the late 40s, the early 50s, in the aftermath of logical positivism. Professional philosophy in England and America had pretty much declared theism in general and Christianity in particular as philosophically indefensible. Yeah. Positivism had declared all religious discourse as uh, cognitively meaningless. It just became very popular to think of any kind of non-analytic, non-empirical discourse, basically anything other than math or science or logic, as non-cognitive language games, not making truth claims at all. And then you had modern science growing by leaps and bounds, closing all these gaps left and right, explaining all kinds of things that people used to think you had to have religion to explain. Right. And it was really looking to a lot of people like, philosophically, academically, there's nothing for religion to do. Today, things are radically, radically different. Yeah. Some of the most well-respected analytic philosophers of the last 40 years, people who have contributed at the highest levels of development of analytical philosophy, are not just theists, but professing and devotional Christians. I mean, you mentioned planning a few minutes ago. Van Inwagen? Oh, yeah. Uh, Peter Van Inwagen. And Van Inwagen is a special case because Van Inwagen converted to Christianity as an adult. He was a philosopher right. first and made the mistake of landing up at Syracuse down the hall from, from William Austin, <laughs> and Austin turned into a Christian. You know, William Austin, of course, another one of those major figures, George Mavrotis, Philip Quinn, Robert Adams, Marilyn McCord Adams, Linda Zabzebski, you know, Tim O'Connor, who's doing some terrific stuff right now, some of the most innovative stuff in free will determinism issues. Well, and today you've got young hotshots like Dean Zimmerman and um, Brian Leftow. Mm-hmm. In fact, in 1988, Tim and I, when we were both still in graduate school, were at a seminar at Wheaton College that Planning that did. It was when he was just developing this warrant stuff in 1988. And the people who were there, Tom Senior from uh, University of Arkansas, who's done a lot of important stuff now, Jeff Jordan, sort of single-handedly resurrected philosophical discussion on Pascal's Wager. Yeah, I've got his volume on that. It's pretty good. Okay. Uh, Jeff Jordan was at that conference. Uh, Dean Zimmerman was at that. It, it, it's interesting with Dean because Dean was at that time a graduate student at Brown studying under Chisholm. Mm. And in planning his first warrant book, he has a whole chapter on Chisholm's internalistic theory of knowledge. 
And at that time, you know, Plantinga says something about, you know, Chisholm's working on the third edition of his theory of knowledge. Plantinga hadn't seen it yet. Well, Zimmerman's there, and he's been Chisholm's prize grad student for the last two years. He knows the third edition of theory of knowledge backward and forward. So Plantinga starts bringing up all these criticisms of Chisholm and Zimmerman sitting there going, uh, no, Chisholm's changed that, and, and it's better now. And, and <laughs> Plantinga actually... <laughs> turned around at one point in that seminar and had Dean lead a one-hour presentation on Chisholm's new ideas. <laughs> that, that first planning to go back and completely rewrite that chapter. <laughs> so that was a... But anyway, you got you got guys that are younger than us who are coming up, guys like I like Brian Leftow, uh, who's just off the charts brilliant. And all of this traces back... If you're looking at what was the work that really forced academic analytic philosophy to begin taking theism in general, and Christian theism in particular, more seriously from a philosophical perspective. The groundbreaking work there, I think, was done Plantinga and Alston. Yeah. Another interesting figure is Norman Malcolm, who was Wittgensteinian, of course. But Malcolm did some very interesting stuff. In fact, Plantinga's infamous ontological argument is a modal reworking of an ontological argument that Norman Malcolm published. And Malcolm did some other philosophy of religion work that you know probably made Wittgenstein turn over in his grave because it just reintroduced the notion of cognitive import in religious claims. So when you talk about the uh, the renaissance of Christian philosophy, it's first of all this renaissance of theism by doing just some dynamite stuff. I mean, you know, Plantinga, one of the most significant things Plantinga did was develop his highly technical, modal version of the free will defense against the argument from evil. I'm going to find one kind of person who doesn't think that argument works, and that is the person who at some point along the way misunderstands it. Every single criticism I've ever read of the doctrine of transworld depravity gets it wrong. In fact, when I was working on my dissertation, I worked for months to try to get the doctrine right. I kept sending interpretations of it to Planninga, and he kept writing back saying, not you got this part wrong, not you got this part wrong. And when I finally sent him a version of it, he wrote me back, and I still got the letter around somewhere. He wrote me back, and I opened it up, and the first line in the letter was, congratulations. He said, you've got the doctrine exactly right. And then he said this, and you should be proud because Mackey got it wrong, Flu got it wrong, Roe got it wrong. You know, here's this roll call of the best analytic uh, atheistic philosophers of religion in the world. Mm -hmm. And he says, he says, every one of them misunderstood it. When Roe finally understood how it was working, then he said, that's it. The logical argument from evil is refuted. And that has become the standard view among the most serious of uh, atheistic philosophers of religion, that Plantinga's transworld depravity defense refutes the logical argument from evil, which is one of the big reasons why the big shift in problem of evil studies in the last 30 years is a shift to an empirical, inductive, probabilistic argument yeah. from evil. And how often does something like that happen in philosophy, where you say, the discussion is done? Alston's work on religious epistemology is just devastating to so many of the classical atheistic charges against the idea of a religious epistemology at all. So those two guys spearheaded this huge movement, but in their wake just came this, this whole slew of highly gifted 
and hard-working Christian philosophers, so that now the largest, by far, the largest special group associated with the American Philosophical Association is the Society of Christian Philosophers. Hmm. Yeah, I've, I've got to jump in and say, first of all, about Planaga, I actually make fun of Planaga a fair bit on my blog about things like, you know, fallen angels creating all natural evil or stuff like that. But I have to say, he is incredibly brilliant and incredibly productive, and reading something like The Nature of Necessity I just kind of jaw-dropped in awe at what incredibly good philosophy that is. So, yeah, a lot of these guys are incredibly brilliant. But I do want to say, too, I think that there would have been somewhat of a renaissance in Christian philosophy around the 1960s, even if there hadn't been such incredible work from people like Planning and Alston because of the demise of logical positivism, which came about mostly because of atheistic philosophers like Quine. So once religious discourse became meaningful again, I think even if there hadn't been Plantinga and Alston, there would have been a resurgence in Christian philosophy, maybe just not to the same degree. Would you agree with that? In a sense, yes, um, but I'm not sure that, you know, what the implications are. I mean, chances are somebody would have come up with relativity theory if Einstein didn't do it. Does that mean that we shouldn't revere Einstein? Of course not. But I think you might be missing a step in your history of philosophy here, because don't forget that what followed logical positivism was ordinary language philosophy. And ordinary language philosophy has no more room for cognitively significant religious dialogue than did positivism. Now, did theistic philosophers have a big role to play in diminishing the importance of ordinary language philosophical approach? The renaissance of Christian philosophy is probably historically, part of a much larger renaissance of what we might call... Oh, metaphysics, for one. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You do come out of logical positivism with a cautionary attitude against speculative philosophy of any kind. Mm -hmm. And so descriptive, or to use Quine's word, naturalistic approaches to philosophical fields is really, and that's, that's the dominating thing, Again, even in Christian philosophy. I mean, the metaphysics and faith in philosophy is overwhelmingly descriptive. There's not, you know, medieval scholastic speculation in there, not even Cartesian speculation. It's analysis of concepts uh, utilized in very ordinary forms of discourse. How do people, in fact, use these concepts? Descriptive metaphysics has shown many ordinary uses of certain concepts to be themselves inconsistent yeah. or are vague or something like that. So what the script of metaphysics does, though, is instead of imposing an a priori metaphysical picture on to our metaphysical discourse. The general attitude of a descriptive approach to philosophy is that our ordinary concepts, we try to do two things. One is we try to understand them as clearly as we can, what the implications of them are, what they aren't. And then we also try to ferret out uh, rough edges. We try to ferret out dimensions of the concepts that may be inconsistent or vague or ambiguous, and we try to straighten those out. Yeah, and I think maybe one major point here is that this is what Christian philosophers are doing today. They're not just recycling old medieval nonsense, let's call it. They're using the exact same tools that philosophers in other fields of analytic philosophy are using to analyze uh, religious concepts. Well, you're planning this larger Christian belief. That's volume three. And what sets that volume up is the first two volumes, where in the first volume, planning the critiques 
every major post-positivistic analytic theory of knowledge that exists. I mean, you can use that first volume as a textbook for graduate-level courses in contemporary epistemology. And then in the second book, he develops his own theory grounded in the criticisms that he raises in the first volume. And so his general theory of epistemology, which is a naturalistic epistemological theory, and develops that in the second book based on the very best that analytic epistemology has to offer, which he surveys in the first book and criticizes. You know, nowadays when you do a, a graduate seminar in contemporary epistemology, one of the theories you're going to study is planning this theory of war. Not as a theory of religious belief, as a theory of epistemology. And then it's that theory that he brings to bear on the specific question of religious belief in Volume 3, and particularly Christian belief. So while that is a very grand example, nonetheless, that is in macrocosm what goes on in virtually every article in Faith and Philosophy on a microcosmic level. It's an exciting time to be a Christian philosopher. Yeah, I'll, I'll bet it is. got to say, I've heard the Warrant Trilogy compared to Aquinas's Summa Theologica or Barth's Church Dogmatics or some of those other major texts in Christian theology, and Plantinga's Warrant Trilogy is really, really impressive on that level. And I think that a lot of people who dismiss Plantinga uh, just obviously haven't actually read him. Right, in the first place, because it's a lot of work to read Plantinga. Yeah, well, but even laymen, I think, can get started with something like God, Freedom, and Evil and see that this is a really impressive mind at work. That's true. I keep hearing God, Freedom, and Evil referred to as, as a popular work, but he asks you to digest some extremely complex concepts. Yeah, I think what's nice about God, Freedom, and Evil though, is that he'll take a chapter to explain what a possible world is and all that sure. kind of stuff. And he does a good job, I think, of giving some more down-home kinds of examples and things to get people to latch on to ideas. But it's not even a popular work the way that The Blind Watchmaker is. Yeah, it's more difficult than that. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, let me speak to something that you alluded to a few minutes ago, because it's another one of my pet peeves, and that is the mileage that so many people have gotten out of Flandinga's talk about fallen angels as a solution to the natural problem of evil. And it is presented specifically as a defense against a logical form of the argument from natural yep. evil. Yeah, I understand that. All it takes to refute a claim of logical inconsistency is a metaphysically possible scenario in which both claims are true. Granted that it is metaphysically possible that there be such things as superhuman spiritual beings that have the capacity to act in such a way as to cause what we interpret as natural disasters. If that is a metaphysical possibility, and the burden of proof would be on the person who claimed it wasn't, because it sure sounds like a perfectly coherent description, no matter how fantastical. So what Planning was said is, look, there is this tradition in Christian theology of Satan and his minions, as Plantinga is fond of saying. And what Plantinga is pointing out is there is a metaphysically consistent, perfectly metaphysically possible scenario. If that were true, then the world would be a world in which an omniscient, omnipotent, morally perfect God exists and natural evil exists. Because the nice thing about that move is, what that basically does is argue there's no such thing as natural evil. All evil is the result of moral choices. And therefore, all evil is accounted for by a free will defense, and that is all planning the did. 
Yep, and I totally agree with all of that. So it's probably good that you clarified it, though. The reason people focus in on that is because I think that's the one thing planning to said in 60 years that people thought they could make fun of. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's so damn good everywhere. <laughs> and he's good there. That's the problem with it. The only thing they can find to criticize about him, they can only do it by poking fun instead of taking it seriously for what it actually is. Yeah. Yeah. But I have actually heard that, in, and I'm sure you've seen it too, I've heard that issue raised many times virtually as an ad hominem against Plantinga. Why are we listening to anything that a guy who puts forward something like this says? Mm-hmm. And so that, that's why I'm a little sensitive to that. Well, you'll be giving an address to the Evangelical Philosophical Association called something like Natural Theology or Theology of Nature, A Call for Clarity in the Science-Religion Dialogue. What's that speech about? It originated in 1998. I spent six weeks, it was a Pew-funded seminar on theology and the new physics, and it was led by John Polkinghorne. Mm-hmm. And in that seminar, we did a lot of looking at stuff that's going on in contemporary, both in contemporary philosophy of religion, philosophy of science, and in the science-religion dialogue that, you know, Polkinghorne spearheads along with people like Peacock and uh, Ian Barber and Robert Russell and mm-hmm. people like that. Robert Russell was actually my first guest on this show. Like I said, I think when I wrote you, I was amazingly impressed with myself that you had asked me to be interviewed when I looked and saw all the other people that you'd interviewed. <laughs> well, thankfully, the audio quality of my interviews has improved since that first episode with Bob Russell. <laughs> But at any rate, one of the ideas that Polkinghorne broached was that these kinds of ideas are often interpreted in terms of their contribution to what you might think of as a natural theology agenda. You think of natural theology as the attempt to demonstrate certain key religious truths grounded solely in what we might call philosophically sanctioned evidence, which would be stuff that virtually anyone has access to, empirical data, rational data. So natural theology would be the project of trying to construct an argument whose premises are all either analytic or empirical and whose conclusion is theological. Okay, can you do that? And he suggested that emphasis on natural theology needed to give way to an emphasis on theology of nature. We're probably going to say that the natural theology is a bottom-up enterprise, mm-hmm. and theology of nature is a top-down enterprise. But one very nice difference about theology of nature is that natural theology of necessity as a bottom-up enterprise is not going to be an interactive enterprise. But in a theology of nature, there's all kinds of room for interaction, for your theology to teach you about nature and even teach you about how to think about what the scientist is doing, but then for the science to turn around and inform your theology. Can you give an example of that? If you're thinking about uh, applying a general Christian framework to evolutionary biology. Or, you know, one place where this is being applied right now is in all of the all of the discussion over, you know, fine-tuning of the universe, anthropic coincidences mm-hmm. and stuff. So you can make a good bit of theological sense out of that. But at the same time, cosmology and physics are going to tell us some things that are going to make us need to rethink our theology. Right now, a, a physics example doesn't come to mind, but if, if you go back to evolutionary biology, I mean, there's one way that biology really made Christian theology go back and rethink a lot of assumptions that it had about the function of Scripture, right? Yeah, or the discovery that the universe is 13.5 billion years old. Right. So on the one hand, theology is able to walk in and say, look, if you think about this kind of metaphysical background or this kind of meta-narrative, 
to overshadow your scientific discoveries, they may not be nearly as surprising as you think they are. Right? Like a fantastic closing paragraph in Robert Jastrow's book, God and, and the Philosophers. He closes the book by saying, uh, you know, for the, for the believer in the religion of science, the whole thing ends like a nightmare. Uh, he has scaled the heights of ignorance. He is about to pull himself over the last precipice. As he mounts the peak, he's met by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. They get to these things, and all of a sudden they're going, how in the world make any sense out of this? And the theologian raises his hand and says, well, there's something we've been talking about since the time of Augustine that you might want to listen to. And so in that way, theology can come in and say, look, here's a way to think about these things that make these things make a lot more sense. Well, and with the theologians at the top of the mountain, I forget, was that allusion to the discovery that the universe had a beginning, or what was that? That was what he was talking about, yeah. Okay, because, you know, Dawkins' response to that is, first of all, you know, 50-50 chance, either it had a beginning or it didn't, so that's not very impressive. And then to get the time scale off by 13.7 billion years is also not very impressive. Yeah, and, and both of those things uh, just demonstrate why Dawkins ought to stick to biology and, and, and quit writing philosophy, because both of those just completely miss the point. What's the point? The point is that for 2,500 years, the very best secular and naturalistic thinkers were saying it was not a 50 to be shot. It's unthinkable that it had a beginning. That's ridiculous. Well, and I don't think that's what Dawkins was saying, though. I think what he's saying is that to get something right where there's only two options is not all that impressive. Whereas if, say, the Bible had in it a passage that said the universe is 13.7 billion years old, where there's, say, 100 billion options or whatever, uh, that would be really impressive. But to get something where there's only two options and get that right is not that impressive, especially when in the context of a thousand things in the Bible that are incredibly wrong about the way the universe works. So I think that's what Dawkins' point is. Or things that theological thought have gotten dead wrong uh, thousands well, of times. Well, I mean, but you can't start playing that game. You can just let's start listing the things science has gotten wrong. In, in the first place, Jastrow's paragraph is a rhetorical piece of literature at the end of a long, a long treatise. Now, and I understand Dawkins going after that because that quote that has gotten a lot of press. Yeah. But still, it's the height of unfairness to make a suggestion like that, that, that and then suddenly that's supposed to refute everything that Jester's trying to do. Like, like many Christian writers, Dawkins enjoys a good game of straw man target practice from time to time. Well, I don't think that's straw man either. I mean, I think you know, most people who have talked about this quote haven't read the book, and so they aren't trying to engage Jester's work at all. They're just trying to engage that very popular notion, that quote that's gone around. And I think Dawkins does that. He says, look, it's, it's not that impressive when there's only two options and the theists happen to get it right. What would be impressive is if they got something like 13.7 billion years right. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that science tends to give us a lot more often than theology. Well, it's certainly true that if it had said something like 13.7 billion years, that would have been impressive. It doesn't follow from that that it's not impressive that they got the beginning right. That's the point I'm making. So anyway, I've been reading Alistair McGrath's latest book, Fine-Tuned Universe. Um, but, but the thing is, as I started reading this book, it struck me that um, what McGrath, McGrath spends the first 50 or so pages of this book trying to argue that we need to shift our understanding of what natural theology is. Basically trying to shift it away from this, what he calls, classical natural theology, that the function of natural theology is to provide good philosophical argument to theological conclusions. And the more I read, the more I thought, he's talking about what Polkinghorne calls a theology of nature. 
but he keeps wanting to insist on calling it natural theology. And the more I read it, the more I thought, to try to hang on to the term natural theology and then spend 50 pages explaining to people why it's okay to use that term, Polkinghorn takes one page in his book to distinguish between natural theology and theology of nature, and then is able to talk for the rest of the book about the fact that what he's doing is theology of nature, and there's no, there's no misunderstanding. <laughs> I know McGrath and Polkinghorn know each other, but why is he doing this? <laughs> so I thought, I need to write a paper of saying, you know, let's make some clear distinctions between two different approaches to a science-religion dialogue. So that's where I'm open to go with it. i got a month to write it. I better come up with something. <laughs> better get cracking, James. Well, you know how it is. Uh, uh, like uh, Mozart said in the movie Amadeus, he says, it's all done. He points to his head and he says, it's all up here. The rest is just scribbling. You know, that's, that's the way I tend to write papers. Sooner or later, I've got to get down to scribbling. <laughs> well, James, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, it's, it's been my absolute pleasure. Like you said, we've both been having way too much fun. 